Let's get our weekly economic briefing from CBS business analyst Jill Schlesinger. Inflation is going down, but according to Jill, there is still a lot of reason to be critical of the actions of the Federal Reserve. It has been a very frustrating time for Federal Reserve officials because they really cannot take a victory lap, can they? They are looking at the economy and they're saying, hey, what do you want from us? We went from 9.1% inflation down to the high threes. We're at 3.7% year over year. Can't you guys give us a break? And the answer is no, because you guys at the Fed and gals started too late. And so the whole reason we got to 9.1% is probably because the Fed started too late. And now you're not getting down to your 2% rate as your target as fast as you'd like, which means that we're stuck with these high interest rates for a longer time. So the Fed's in a pickle right now. There's not much they can do to move the needle on inflation except keep rates higher for longer. But isn't this good news for savers? Because every so yes. often, you know, banks are coming out with these CDs that pay 5 6%. It's crazy. Yeah, it's you're right. That is absolutely true. And it has been a good time to be a saver. You know, of course, that's time limited, right? And if you think about what impacts us as human beings, often we are really forming opinions and um, uh, about the economy and in when we go out into shop, right? So there's two ways we really think about the economy, our jobs and when we go out shopping. So listen, the labor market's been very good and it has, it has stayed, remained quite resilient and wages are up substantially since before the COVID era, substantially. Unfortunately, so too are prices. They're still up, you know, let's say 20, probably 21% higher than they were before COVID started. So in wow. excess of that 2% per year inflation rate, right? Yeah. So what do we do with that? I think the way you have to think of is, how are you doing financially? There was a recent um, University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index released. They, and I love the questions they ask because it does give you the picture of where so many people stand. It's like, how do you feel about the economy? Lousy. Uh, how do you feel about inflation? It's too high. Uh, how do you feel about interest rates? Well, I'm worried if I have to borrow money, but I'm kind of happy if I'm a saver. How is your per- – so overall, like how do you feel? Still lousy. How's your personal financial situation? You know what the answer is? What? Pretty good. Really? Pretty good. Huh. <laughs> it's so weird. This is all so perception we, yet again. Exactly. That you know, listen, this is why if you're in a hard science like mathematics, you hate economics. Because those hard scientists are like, what's the equation? What's the answer? Economists are like, well, We have certain equations about what we think could happen, but people are an important component of that. And how we feel and what we do is linked to that. Okay, so So how does that perception, how does that negative perception affect the speed of the recovery then? Doesn't that sort of dampen it? It could. You know, it just depends. Because if people say, I feel lousy, and yet they still spend, then there is no impact. Because essentially, look look at the, the third quarter of this year, people spent like crazy and it was up and down the income stream. It was not even like close. We had a 4.9% annualized pace of growth in the third quarter of this year. That doesn't just happen when rich people go to Paris in the summer, right? Yeah. So a lot of people were spending a lot of money and we continue to spend money. Here's where it would change. If we come into this holiday season and people say, I'm tapped out, I'm done. That is actually going to change the trajectory of the economy, right? 
when we have feelings like I don't feel good about my personal situation, I think that's when spending starts to really retreat. So, so that's what we're keeping an eye on. We're hearing from CBS Jill Schlesinger. So what is the outlook for 2024? You know, I think that in all of the um, economic analysis, often what is forgotten is that we have to keep going back to we went through a once in a century pandemic globally, and that has done a number on the economy for good and for bad, right? For good, it's like, hey, wages have gone up substantially. And it would be interesting to really isolate sort of the lower to middle income people and say, okay, let's look at where you were in 2018. Here's what you're, you were getting paid $11 an hour and the prices were at this level. Now you're getting paid $21 an hour and prices are much higher. Have you actually done better in those five years? It's very hard for people to think that way, but that's kind of what we're we're seeking in an analysis to figure out where the economy goes next. Okay, so bring this all this down to politics. Is there something that the president of the United States ought to be doing now to make people feel better about their situation? I mean, can you? I don't know. Inflation is a very sticky thing, and it, it sort of leaves an imprint in your brain. Like, people are like, gas prices are high. I'm like, okay, they are high, but, like, we are down substantially, actually, from the peak, and they're higher than they were. Do you want gas prices to be less than $2 a gallon? That means we're in a deep recession, and it's hard to convince people of ways to feel. You can say we've made advances. You know, these unions have made strides. People are making more money. Prices are going to come down eventually. The economy did not go into a te- into a ditch. We're not in a recession. You can do all the things that's not happened. But are you going to convince somebody otherwise? I don't know. It's so polarized anyway. Like Democrats say, I do feel better. And Republicans say, I don't feel better. And then it flips the day after the elections. Yeah. But I mean, that's a good point. If gas, I mean, I remember when gas was 33 cents a gallon. But if gas yeah. was 33 cents a gallon now, that, that would mean we were in the depths of a, a, a catastrophic depression. Exactly right. And do we want that? No. So I know that everybody is, I know that we can be um, pushed around by our emotions. What I would just ask you to do is if you're hearing this and you think about your own family's finances and you say, you know what, we have really spent a little bit too much. We don't have as much in our emergency reserve fund. We should really replenish that. Let's go easy on our holiday season. That's what you should be doing. And if it's like, hey, I got a raise, things are good. I can still keep my emergency reserve fund. I can pay down my outstanding debt. Like life's good. Then go, you go nuts. You do whatever you want to do for the holiday season. But each of us has a decision to make based on our current situation, not what you think is going to happen in the economy. CBS business analyst, Jill Schlesinger. Thank you, Jill. Thank you, sir. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Child vaccination rates going down. Let's page the doctor. Paging Dr. Cohen. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. And this is a new report indicating that apparently a lot of parents have lost confidence in uh, vaccines in general. Now, we're talking about the usual childhood vaccinations for uh, uh, diphtheria and all the rest. Yeah, it certainly seems that way, Dave. I mean, uh, this past week, the CDC reported the highest childhood vaccine exemption rate ever in the history of the United States. And 40 of the 50 states actually saw an increase in parents 
um, citing either religious or other personal concerns for not vaccinating their kids. Now we're talking about vaccine that vaccines that kids get like prior to starting school. So we're not. This is not about the COVID vaccine per se, but I think it is related to the way the COVID vaccine uh, was handled. So we're talking about vaccines that kids get before starting school. And the fact of the matter is, is that it, it sort of varies by state, but um, but most have a requirement, uh, whether you're attending public or even private school, uh, to get vaccines for measles, mumps, rubella. That's often called the MMR vaccine. And then diphtheria and tetanus, that's often called a DT. And then pertussis, those, those are sometimes pulled together and called DTAP. Uh, and then poliovirus and chickenpox. So those are the typical vaccines that kids get before uh, before starting school. And th these are widely required. But what's happening is, is that parents are now claiming either, you know, religious or uh, other personal con concerns, and they're not getting their kids vaccinated. Well, when I was growing up, uh, it was, you know, there was no question but that your parents were going to get you vaccinated because, especially when it came to polio, um, we knew kids who had polio. We saw pictures of people in these iron lungs, and so parents were uh, eager to make sure you got vaccinated. But I think these diseases that you're talking about, for a lot of people, they're, they're unknown. I guess we assume that they've been conquered and uh, plus the doubt that was sowed by uh, the COVID vaccine, I suppose that could be combining to cause this phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, I think that is what's happening. I think that, you know, first of all, most of these diseases are unknown to parents. They they don't know people who had them. They maybe occasionally hear a story in the news or something about a small outbreak in some, you know, random city somewhere. And uh, there was so much confusing information uh, that was put out about the COVID vaccine. Uh, it became so contentious. And, and, and then nobody there were all kinds of reports, whether they were true or not or related or not, about side effects of the vaccine. Well, vaccines have always had this umbrella over them uh, because of, you know, reports that have been debunked. But they were, you know, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago about, uh, you know, certain childhood vaccines uh, causing autism. And although that probably is not the case, there's still a strong belief uh, that that is the case amongst anti-vaxxers. Okay, for, so for parents who are vac vaccine skeptics, and I know that you've been uh, you've been very open minded on this. You don't condemn parents for having doubts, especially because of the way the COVID vaccine was rolled out. But uh, if we're talking about parents who are not giving uh, their kids these, getting their, their kids these uh, childhood vaccinations, how do they protect their kids? Then do they have them wear masks, or what? What can they do? No, no the fact is they're not protected. And, and the thing is, is this is why I, I'm disappointed at the way the COVID vaccine was ha handled because there wasn't a lot of good information that was put out and it was clearly done in a, you know, almost experimental way. These other vaccines have been around for a really long time. In some cases, they've been around for many decades. And so we know that they're safe and we know that there are minimal to no side effects associated with them. And we know that they're effective. So I think that people should be getting them. I actually feel pretty strongly that people should be getting them. Having said that, I understand the other side of it, which is the hesitation and the lack of trust uh, because of the COVID vaccine and the amount of confusing information that was, was put out. So you're saying it's a big mistake to lump these childhood vaccines in with the COVID vaccine? 
Right. The general the, the general umbrella of vaccines shouldn't be applied to every single vaccine that's out there. The word vaccine is is a big umbrella, but it contains a lot of different things. Uh, and in all cases, it's trying to stimulate your immune system to do something. And in this case, these vaccines against measles, mumps, rubella, you know, diphtheria and so forth. And we talked about polio, chickenpox. Those vaccines, they've been around for a long time. They're safe. Uh, the, the illnesses in some cases can be quite, uh, quite serious. And, and so I think it's important for, for kids to be getting these. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. Dr. Cohen, thank you. Thanks, Dave. We're going to head to the nation's capital now where the House is meeting today, hoping to resolve the latest debt crisis uh, to avoid a shutdown, the budgeting crisis, actually. We're not talking about the debt anymore. I called up CBS Congressional Correspondent Scott McFarland to ask him about the prospects here. We have uh, five days till the deadline and a very murky situation considering how close we are to the deadline, Dave. The House Speaker, the new House Speaker has come up with something that's... um, his, some of his critics say he's too cute by half. It's a spending bill that keeps everything where it is now. No poison pills, no cuts or policies Democrats would never support. But he chops the government in half in these spending bills. One third of the government actually would be funded through January. The other two thirds would be funded through February. And that's what he says is an effort to avoid a holiday Christmas week, you know, free for all, where they just punt on everything and spend too much money. But I'm not sure where the Democratic votes are on this. It's less than clear this morning. That makes it tricky to know what's ahead for us this week. I, I read about that, and I, I have to admit I, I don't get it. What's the What was he trying to accomplish there? Well, some of his Freedom Caucus members, the more conservative members of his conference, like this idea. They like splitting things up to avoid what they say is too big a bottom line, too big a spending bill, but also to give them more leverage to exact cuts later on. It's a procedural thing they've talked about, you know, over cigars and brandy for many years. They're actually going to give it a shot now. Democrats are in the middle here. I think they'd like part of this bill because it is what they want, a continuing resolution that doesn't change spending, doesn't cut things, doesn't cut into their priorities. But it would be it would be allowing, if not championing, this idea from Republicans if they signed on to it and maybe allow it to happen in the future. And really, it's disruptive, Dave, because think about this. The Department of Homeland Security helps the Department of Energy. The Department of Treasury and the Department of Commerce work together on things, matters of national security, matters of economic growth. If you shut one down to keep the other one open, you are being quite disruptive. Here from Scott McFarland, CBS congressional correspondent. I wanted to know what's happened to the discussion over funding for Ukraine and Israel in all this. What does this proposed compromise say in terms of foreign aid? No money for Ukraine, no money for Israel, no money for the southern border, which Republicans say they will require if they are to approve either money for Israel or money for Ukraine. All of that has to happen separately. What's happening is a dressed-up, masqueraded version of what ousted Kevin McCarthy, a clean bill to keep the government open, no changes in spending. He's using a parliamentary – I shouldn't say parliamentary. He's using a technique to make it look different, and to a degree it is different, to – to assuage the right-wing members of his party, but he's really doing the same thing that got Kevin McCarthy out of a job. I see. Um, but I, I, they're not going to kick him out just for this, are they? No, with an asterisk. Um, <laughs> let's see how long the honeymoon period is. I mean, he's got some grace period because they know they boxed him in by taking three of the six weeks available and spending it on a Speaker of the House fight. 
He has precious little time, and he may get some latitude, but he's going to need Democratic votes to get this done. He's already lost enough members of his Republican conference to make this a close call just on what's on paper right now. And if he gets too many Democrats to sign on, that could be dangerous for him because Kevin McCarthy was removed from his position because his Republican colleagues said he cut deals that were too soft and too agreeable with Democrats. Okay, but this, again, also just kicks it down the road, right? So we we face yet another deadline. What's wrong with going through the appropriations process and approving stuff that can pass the Senate and then, you know, try to work on flipping the Senate? But, I mean, that's that's the reality, right? It's got to pass the Senate, and they don't control the Senate yet. That's right, and they're going to continue with the appropriations process in the meantime. You know, the real one that funds every agency for a full year. Um, But there seems to be a day of reckoning ahead at some point. At some point, it could be January or February or before this Congress ends in the next election, Republicans in the House and Democrats in the Senate have to recognize they need each other to keep the government open on more than a 45-day basis. Republicans can't say we need our own priorities, screw the Democrats, and Democrats can't say the reverse. And they haven't really realized that in the first 11 months of this Congress. There hasn't been a real reckoning. I guess for Kevin McCarthy there was, but not for the entirety of Congress. If January and February come by... At some point, they've got to figure this out or there's going to be a government shutdown. All right. You heard it here first. CBS congressional correspondent Scott McFarland. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Dave. Seattle's Morning News, Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Monday is time for Crime and Punishment with Casey McNerthney of the King County Prosecutor's Office. And today we follow up on a hate crime. This happened about a year ago to a man who was waiting at a bus stop in Seattle when a stranger spouting racial slurs just punches him in the face and breaks his headphones. The culprit was arrested, but what happened next wasn't what you'd expect. Let's go to Casey. How did this turn out, Casey? Well, this case was handled by Yasmin Manjo, who's the senior deputy prosecutor in our office, who handles hate crimes and looks at these cases every day and worked out a resolution and, most importantly, went to the victim and said, we want you to be a part of this process. What do you think should be the outcome here? Um, And and so what happened with this resolution is that the defendant went through an anger management course, went through a pretty intensive substance use treatment program, also engaged in long-term mental health services, and even before a court order, uh, completed 80 hours of community service. And as part of the resolution also, he was the subject of a no-contact order with the victim. Here in a little more detail is Yesenia explaining uh, how this resolution worked. It was a horrible, traumatic incident, but it was a resolution that was meaningful, it was impactful, it was victim-centered, and it really is an example of the different ways that a defendant can be held accountable for their actions and that chose to be accountable for their actions. So he did not go to jail? He was given time served. And, and so, and, and I think a lot of people will look at that and say, I mean, shouldn't you lock somebody up for, for years and years? But what people also don't realize is that a hate crime is a class C felony. And so even somebody who has a pretty significant history is expected to only go to jail for a, a few months based off of the statewide guidelines that are set by lawmakers for those sentences. But with this resolution uh, for an attempted hate crime, which he pleaded to, and really, most importantly, with, with, with the sign-off of the victim in this case, uh, that was what allowed this guy to go through that treatment and, and the anger management process of it to make sure, as best we can, that it won't 
have it again, which is a trade-off because, you know, there isn't that jail time there, but there wouldn't be the same services behind bars that you would have in this outcome. And, and, and so one of the big questions that I have for Yesenia is, you know, how often do we see this where we have somebody who is convicted of either a hate crime or like this case an attempted hate crime where they do apologize for it and where the victim signs off and says, yes, this is the route that I want to take. And here's how Yesenia answered that. There's a spectrum in in terms of an individual's accountability on a personal level, but I will say most of the resolutions for hate crimes in King County are supported by victims because we take a victim-centered approach. And I will say most victims of hate crimes do not, they're not really interested in jail time. What they're interested in is some form of accountability, maintaining the hate crime language. They're interested in a no-contact order that protects their safety, and they're interested in rehabilitative measures that the uh, defendant engage in some sort of treatment to address part of their behavior and to give back to the community. Those are really the pieces that most victims of hate crimes really desire as the outcome. And for the majority of hate crime cases, because King County Prosecuting Attorney's Office takes a very victim-centered approach, most of our resolutions are supported by victims when they want to be a part of that process. Now, I don't want to jinx it, but what if this particular defendant uh, messes up again? Then we're back at square one. Then, you know, that always is a possibility. But the hard part is, even if it's for the book at them, and they get a sentence under what the state law sets as those sentencing recommendations, it really would, would most likely be only a few months. And so we would be back at that same spot there too. And so really, there isn't a, a perfect outcome either way. It's just that we looked at this and, and said, this we think is, is the most likely route to prevent recidivism. Now, I know that your uh, boss, Lisa Mannion, was part of a summit on uh, on hate crimes this past week. How did that turn out, and was there any kind of new approach uh, decided on for addressing these things? Well, it was a good collaboration. The King County Prosecutor's Office was there, the Anti-Defamation League. There was a representative from the Wingloop Museum that was targeted earlier this year, and the rabbi from the Temple to Hearst, the Sinai. And a lot of people had questions of, you know, the recent suspicious letters that have gone to the different synagogues. Those haven't come to us yet, but that's certainly on our radar, and we'll, you know, we'll act on those if we do get those referred by police. Really what it was, and there were a lot of people in the room from law enforcement from across Western Washington, and, and even from the east side of the state, trying to get people on, on the same page. The idea was to share that knowledge and, and say, how can we work together? Here's a, a clip from Lisa explaining the summit last week. I think the thing that is universal is that we're all concerned about the level of hate that we're seeing in our community. But together, we can improve law enforcement's response. We can improve the King County Prosecuting Attorney's Office's response to hate crimes. We can hold people accountable and we can make sure that communities remain united and that we address this together. Now, in the case of the uh, the guy at the, who was punched at the bus stop, uh, apparently, his attacker was uh, having a bad day, and uh, I assume, based on the fact that he was very cooperative, was uh, was apologetic. Either that, or he really, really, really didn't want to go to jail. But I mean, do you, do you find that the the people who commit these hate crimes are in fact just having a bad day, or 
are there some really dangerous people out there who are ready to attack you because of the way you look? One thing that we see a lot of when you look at these cases are people who have serious substance use issues and also mental health issues, or sometimes both. And that's a big concern because, and it's certainly not an excuse. There are a lot of people who have substance use issues who don't hate people as a result. And so you can't use that as a crutch to get out of it. But the key is looking at those cases individually to say, okay, what's the best outcome here to to try to keep this person from being hateful again? Because hate crimes are are unique in in one, that they're often underreported, but also that even though it's one person or a group of people that are targeted, everybody who identifies that way feels like it's a crime against them because it is. And, 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 And so there isn't an easy answer to it. It really is both. But trying to get the people who who are caught in those cases that are reported and investigated and prosecuted to, to you know have the most likely outcome that they're not going to do it again. And are we seeing the same kind of upward trend in these cases that uh, we've been seeing around the country? So in 2022, there were 530 of those cases around Washington State, um, which is down slightly from 547 uh, in 2021. And, and those are from the FBI stats. But what was also interesting that we saw in a presentation from the uh, authorities at that summit last week was that there were 13 counties that in 21 didn't have hate crimes that then had those reported in 22. And, and so there's not a big spike one way or the other, either positive or negative, but we also know that there's a lot of cases that don't go reported. And so that was another element, too, that we wanted to, to share with folks, too. And Yesenia does great outreach also to try to reach out to communities to say, hey, if you if you feel like you're being targeted, please let us know. And 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 there are people who want to investigate it. Casey McNerthney from the King County Prosecutor's Office. Thank you, Casey. Thanks, Dave. Your daily dose of kindness now brought to you by Robert W. Baird, a unique program improving lives of the young and old, but uniting the two generations at the same time. CBS's Adriana Diaz has the story. Bye. Have a good day. It's a typical morning. Have a great day. At the preschool, kindness creators. But inside. Two and two is four. The math lessons are anything but typical. We like to say that we are helping fight ageism one little baby at a time. The school is inside a retirement complex called Oak Park Arms. The kids visit the seniors down the hall. How are you? Good. And the seniors can pop into preschool to help teach. Is she fun to play with? Yeah. Yeah? This program helps with kids being more accepting of older people and older people being more accepting with kids running around. The idea came from teachers and best friends, Pam Lawrence and Jamie Moran, who know the benefits. I grew up with my grandfather who had Alzheimer's disease. I remember that I was the only one he remembered towards the end and that like his, I'm going to tear you, I'm sorry, like his light, his eyes would light up when I would come in the room. Is it her birthday today too? Yeah. It's therapeutic for resident Ann Grassley. Some mornings I'm not in too great shape, and then I come down here and you have to forget all that because you can see why. <laughs> you, you just forget. You go into a different realm. I tell you, so when the kids makes your day. Residents Nancy Thornton and Mark Schwartz say not seeing the preschoolers during COVID was terrible. Because they would cheer you up, you know, to see their little faces and their yes. smiles. 
You missed them? Oh, yes. Loneliness is a killer. It's been likened to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Donna Butts runs Generations United, which promotes intergenerational learning. For older adults, they score better on memory tests. They're more physically able as well as mentally able. And children show improvements in language, math, and social skills. How old are you today, Sadie? That playful energy uplifts Lurie Bell. It inspires me, it motivates me, and it makes me believe in myself. And it's a good thing. Just these four year olds. Yeah. Do you hope that this is a model that's repeated across the country? I think this is a way to help change our country. You know, we say love always wins. This is the definition of love. So spread it, sprinkle it everywhere. For CBS Saturday Morning. Adriana Diaz, Oak Park, Illinois. Gee, Scott is here. Did they did they make you uh, predict the score on Friday? No, you weren't here on Friday, were you? No, no. But did, you, did you predict the score on Friday? I'm he would have said 31-27-21 is what he would have said. Yeah, well, what was the score? It was like 32-26? Uh, yeah. No, they uh, won. 29, no, 29-26 or something like that. 29-26. Yeah. Um, they did win, and it was a beautiful win. They are 6-3 and mo- three this morning. My coffee tasted like 6-3. and three. Tied, <laughs> tied for first in the NFC West division. Right. They got it done. So I know there's a lot of people says, yeah, but gee, it wasn't a pretty win. It, it's all the same. It's like babies, right? It's still a good, healthy baby, no matter if it's pretty <laughs> or ugly. <laughs> now, <laughs> when, now, when it comes to these Seahawks, I heard you guys say, who was the most important player? You know, I was driving this morning in the traffic, and of course, Sully was getting us through traffic, and that traffic was a disaster at first, and then it worked out. I want to talk about Jason Myers, and here's why. He had five field goals. He went five for five. He, this Seahawks field goal kicker. Yeah. He was absolutely outstanding. But today, all week, nobody's going to talk about just about Jason Myers? Nobody's going to talk about the kicker. Well, Dave They're did. Gonna... He did a whole commentary on Jason did Myers. Did you really? I did, yeah. You know what? Because you and Jason Myers, y'all got a lot in common. You what? know what I mean? <laughs> I can't wait I to can't hear kick this. a ball 10 feet. <laughs> well, let me, let me tell you what you have in common. You I, Seriously, Jason Myers kicked that kick yesterday. If that were me... Or maybe you, Colleen, mm-hmm. we would lose our mind in front of seventy some thousand people. Yeah, yeah. Look at me. He kicked it like, all right. Well, my name's Dave Ross. I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm just gonna drive to Mercer Island now. I just, I just won the game for the entire Seahawks organization. No big deal. Salute the service. No big deal. You know what? I mean? well, Stop off and get some treats. That's what he said in the post game. Every kick is the same to him. Mm. Every kick is the same. I didn't even hear the post game. That's what I'm saying. The dude is yeah. money. Anyway, he is incredible because if he would have missed field goals, yeah. right, we would be, no, I would be going crazy about him. I can't believe it. We need a new kicker, all that. Yeah. But no, Jason Myers has frozen toenails. <laughs> what does that mean? He can kick it. What? And it's cool. You can kick it better when you have frozen toenails. Like, that sounds painful, man. Like, I thought maybe something was wrong with him. I don't know. But the, the, You're the, all about the feet. What's with you and football players and their feet? 
<laughs> oh, he's no, all about you. the shoes. That's you, Kylie. You know, he's on, got on the great feet. feet. All right, so they got it done. Um, you know, I thought that Geno Smith played excellent. He was 31 for 47. He threw for 369 yards. He threw for two touchdowns, no interception. He had a quarterback rating of 103. Colleen, don't ask me how they come up with that rating, because I don't know. But Geno Smith played well. The run game was doing well. The defense... hey, Let me ask you this. Yes. They're, they're tied with San Francisco now. Yes, sir. Uh, are they better than San Francisco? I mean, we don't know yet. Because they haven't played I know, each other. That's why they play the game. That's like, a, what's your gut feeling? My, 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 my gut feeling, my gut feeling is that they are neck and neck, and I'm and I, I mean that seriously. The San Francisco 49ers just come off a three game losing streak, Ooh. right? So they were losing. They just got in the win column after a bye week, so they were losing for a hot little second. Brock Purdy kind of like had a struggle a little bit when he didn't have Debo Samuel. I'm not gonna lie though, I'm more worried about. The Rams, who they play this week, than I am the Niners. I don't know what it is about Sean McVay, head coach for the Rams, oh, and, the, and the Rams. They really give the Seahawks a really hard time. Mm. So it's just something about that. All right. I'll spend the week worrying about that then. Right. Thank you. Dave, I just want to say, man, you look good today. Those jeans look nice and yeah. crisp. Chris yeah. Belt like the looks good. Yeah, the yeah. shirt looks... Is that a new yeah. shirt? But I need, a, I need a diamond ring like you have. It, it's true. Is that a new shirt? No. No, This I've had this for a while, but I did have a dry clean, so there you go. <laughs> That's what you're noticing. That's it. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you'll never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.